July 19, 1989, United Airlines Flight 232, a McDonnell Douglas DC-10, is on a regularly scheduled flight from Denver to Chicago. The plane is piloted by Captain Alfred Haynes with First Officer William Records and Flight Engineer Dudley Dvorak. The flight took off at 2.09 p.m. with 285 passengers and 11 crew members. At 3.16 p.m. while at cruising altitude and executing a shallow right turn, the crew feels a jolt and the autopilot disengages. The crew quickly realizes the plane has not only lost an engine, but has also lost all of its hydraulic fluid and is no longer responding to their attempts to control it. The crew contacts maintenance personnel for advice and are told that controlling the plane is virtually impossible and there are no procedures for the situation they find themselves in. What happened to United 232? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hey everyone, welcome to Black Box Down. As always, it's Gus and Chris. How are you doing, Chris? I'm good. I just had breakfast. You just had breakfast. Um, what, what did you eat? Do you mind me asking? Well, I had an a English muffin cut in half and I put an egg and cilantro and some uh, a fake uh, turkey on it. What do you call mm. that? Murky. What do you, what's the fake... Tofurkey. Tofurkey. English muffin is not allowed. This is an American flight. Ah, United Airlines. We're not on, not a British Airways incident. So it's okay. Actually, I think English muffins are an American thing. I think in the UK, they're called like American muffins or something. It's like a weird <laughs> thing like that. Like we're the, we're the only country that really uses no one them. Wants, we call them English muffins. No one wants to take credit for it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, no, you all <laughs> no, no, no. made that. You guys. <laughs> That's on you. Uh, as always, I want to remind people, uh, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, you should follow us on social media on Twitter and Instagram at BlackBoxDownPod. We post uh, images and links to videos and things that we may discuss during the episode that maybe you can't visualize. Uh, if you're wondering, uh, go check it out. Like after last episode, you know, Chris was talking about trying to visualize the vertical stabilizer and the horizontal stabilizer. So uh, on social media, I went ahead and posted different configurations that way you can take a look and see for yourself. Yeah. Most of the time, Gus sends me stuff personally before he posts it on social media. And I'm always like, that made my mouth drop. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, it's so crazier seeing it than just yeah. hearing it. Well, speaking of mouse dropping, this is a, a crazy incident. I think this is probably the incident that started my interest in aviation disasters. Uh, I remember seeing this. I was 11 years old when this incident happened. And I remember watching this. It was a, it was big news. The, I remember watching the footage of this incident over and over when it played on the news that night back in 1989. What was crazy to me at the time as an 11-year-old was watching this incident, and we'll get to the specifics, which looks terrible. Like It looks like nobody would survive this. But a good number of people actually did survive. Oh. And uh, then, you know, once you learn more about the, once you learn all the things we're about to talk about, you'll see exactly how wild this incident actually is. As an 11 year old, I couldn't grasp it. But uh, as I've gotten older, it's been uh, more and more interesting to me. So yeah. I've been wanting to do this episode for a long time. I'm glad we're finally doing it. So let's dig into it. Let's dig. So United Airlines Flight 232, like I said, it was a passenger flight. It was scheduled from Denver to Chicago and then was going to go on to Philadelphia. Uh, it was on a McDonnell Douglas DC 10 which is one of those trijet planes. You know, it's got an engine under each wing and an engine back at the tail. Mm-hmm. Is that a big one? Uh, yes, this is a, uh, a dual aisle, so it's a wide body. So gotcha. it can carry a lot of people. The plane had been operated by United since 1971, and this plane had 43,401 hours before this flight with almost 17,000 cycles. And if you remember from our Japan Airlines episode, a cycle is the entire flight for a plane. You know, when it's on the ground, takes off, pressurizes, and then comes back down and lands and depressurizes. The flight was crewed by 57-year-old Captain Alfred Claire Haynes, who was hired by United in 1956 and had almost 30,000 hours of flight time. He was a 29,967. His co-pilot was First Officer Roy Records, who was 48, 
who'd worked for a couple of other airlines before joining United in 1985, and he had about 20,000 hours of flight time. Hmm. And, you know, this is an older plane. We've talked about this before. Since it was an older plane, they also had a flight engineer. Gotcha. Flight engineer Dudley Joseph Dvorak, who was 51, and he was hired by United in 1986, and he had almost 17,000 hours. So, you know, we talk about how many hours these pilots have in a lot of episodes, and sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more. All three of these guys had a ton of hours. These are very experienced, uh, this is a very experienced crew that they have up there for this flight. And there's three of them. And there's three of them, but wait, there's more. What? On top of that, by pure coincidence, there was also a guy named Dennis Edward Fitch. He was a passenger on this flight, but he was a training Czech airman for United. And a Czech airman is someone who is certified to evaluate and qualify commercial pilots. What? So they... (laughs) (laughs) As a passenger on this plane, they just happen to have the guy who qualifies commercial pilots for this kind of plane. Like, this guy this guy knows the DC-10 like nobody's <laughs> business. This is the guy who can determine whether other people can fly the plane or not. Wow. He was 46, and he had about 23,000 hours of flight time. Uh, he had experience as an engineer. He had experience as a first officer, as a captain. He'd done it all. So this is, like, the best crew you could possibly have. The dream team. He also was familiar with an incident we talked about previously. He was very familiar with the Japan Airlines 123 crash. You know, personally, he had wondered if it would be possible to control an aircraft like that using only the throttles. And he'd actually practiced doing that on a simulator because he was really interested in what happened in that incident. So flight 232 took off from Stapleton International Airport in Denver at 2.09 p.m. And for the next hour, the flight operated normally. At uh, 3.16 p.m., while the plane was cruising at 37,000 feet and making a shallow turn to the right, the fan disc in the tail-mounted engine explosively disintegrated. The fan disc blew out of the aircraft and the debris damaged the horizontal stabilizer as well as the hydraulic system lines that passed through the horizontal stabilizer. Explosively disintegrated. Yeah, it just like flew apart. You know, the fan disc is that part, like if you look at an engine, the spinning part you see at the front. Uh Uh, So that just like shattered and it just sent debris everywhere. And it damaged, like I said, the horizontal stabilizer and the hydraulic system lines that passed right through there. Damn. The weird thing about this plane is, you know, they wanted to make sure that the crew never loses hydraulic fluid. This plane actually had three different hydraulic systems in it to make sure that if one failed, you know, there were still backup systems. The problem is that all three converged at the horizontal stabilizer and they were all running side by side right where the engine blew up and the debris punctured all three lines. Oh, my. So, like, the fan explodes and then hits the worst thing possible on the (laughs) on the way out. I mean, there may be worse things that could hit, but this is pretty bad. You know, as we've discussed before, without hydraulic fluid, the crew really has no way to affect the control surfaces of the plane, like the ailerons, the rudder, things like that. Didn't didn't this happen on the Japan flight? Similar, similar. Uh, The Japan flight was because decompression destroyed the vertical stabilizer, and then they also did lose all of their uh, hydraulic fluid. So you're right. Very similar. (laughs) Ha ha. (laughs) Memory. You're doing pretty good, Chris. Yeah. And this is... Because I've had my hydraulic system in my car go out, and it's just you just don't steer. You're, you're power steering. Yeah. That's the same thing, essentially, right? Analogous, yeah. Yeah. Except, you know, like, if your power steering in your car goes out, it becomes very difficult to turn your wheel, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine if, <laughs> instead of, like, trying to turn your tires, you're trying to move, like, parts of a plane that weigh thousands of pounds. It's totally different. You know, it's way more difficult, if not impossible, to control a plane without the hydraulic fluid. So when this happened, the pilots felt a jolt and the autopilot system disengages. Mm -hmm. First officer records took hold of the control column while Captain Haynes discovered that the tail engine was malfunctioning and he found its throttle and fuel supply controls were jammed. So uh, flight engineer Dvorak suggested cutting off fuel to the tail engine and they went ahead and did that. They cut off that fuel. 
So all of this happened over 14 seconds. So, you know, the crew was right on top of things. They acted very quickly. Everyone knew what they were doing and everyone, you know, they trying to quickly diagnose the problem and, and troubleshooting right away. And what does what cutting off fuel to the tail engine do? So they want to make sure to cut that fuel supply so that if there's a break in the line, it's just not spewing fuel everywhere. Gotcha. If there's a fire, you know, they can stop fuel from going to it. It's just a safety mechanism. They know the engine's not working. There's no point in sending fuel to it. So just cut it off, right? Better safe Smart. than sorry. Yeah. So Records discovers that the plane is not responding to his control column. You know, he tried applying maximum left aileron and he pulled all the way back, but the plane was banking to the right with the nose down. So he's trying to make it go left and up, but the plane's going right and down. Uh-huh. Captain Haynes attempted to assist by inputting the same movements on his column, but that didn't work either. And the crew starts worrying that the plane's going to roll into an inverted position if they don't do something quickly to correct it. So they reduce the left engine to idle and apply maximum power to the right engine, which causes the plane to kind of level out. Smart. So they're doing everything right. Right. They're, they're trying to take control of the plane. They're trying to keep it in the air. Haynes and Records began the engine shutdown checklist for the failed engine, and Dvorak found that the gauges for fluid pressure and quantity in all three hydraulic systems were indicating zero. So, like we said, no hydraulic fluid means control surfaces are inoperative. And like you mentioned, this happened in Japan 123. Uh, we've talked about this in a couple of episodes. Hydraulic fluid is absolutely necessary. So they're just kind of floating at this point, or they, they can only go straight and like, they can't steer. Right. The plane wants to go down and right. So they're trying to keep it <laughs> going straight. And they're using, you know, throttle to do that at the moment. The flight crew deploys an air-driven generator in attempt to restore hydraulic power by powering auxiliary hydraulic pumps, but it's unsuccessful. There's, there's nothing in there. So the crew contacts United Maintenance personnel on the radio, but they were told that controlling the DC-10 without hydraulics was virtually impossible, and there was no established procedure for this kind of event. And, you know, we talk about this all the time in aviation. There's always a checklist. There's always, you know, mm-hmm. if this is going on, here are the steps you take. You know, they, <laughs> they, they contact their maintenance people. They say, this is what we have going on. It's not in our book. What can we do? And the maintenance people, their quote is, it's virtually impossible. Oh, my God. And they're just like, sorry, you're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's like, sorry, we have nothing to tell you. We have nothing to add to this. Good luck. Which is, you know, I'm sure what they do not want to hear. So the plane was pulling to the right and began a slow fugoid cycle. And for those who don't remember or unfamiliar, a fugoid cycle is when the plane uncontrollably goes through cycles of climbing and descending until it becomes stable. So it's like the plane's speeding up and it starts climbing and that makes it slow down. So then it starts dipping and going down and that makes it speed up. So it starts climbing. So it's just kind of like, I think you said it was like being on a roller coaster, Chris. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like that. And the plane was losing about 1,500 feet during each iteration of the fugoid cycle. So it's going up and down, and it's, you know, losing about 1,500 feet every time. Now, I remember I'd mentioned Fitch, who was flying as a passenger, and he said he was an experienced captain and DC-10 instructor. He volunteered to assist. You know, he calls the flight attendant and says, hey, if anything's going on, let the captain know I'm here to help. So the message was relayed by a flight attendant, and he was invited into the cockpit where he began assisting at 329, which is 13 minutes after the van disintegration. So uh, Haynes asked Fitch to observe the ailerons through the passenger windows to see if they were moving. They basically said, hey, can you go out and look out the window and see, if, <laughs> see, if, see what's working, see what's not? So uh, he goes back and you know, he sees that they aren't, so he reports that they're, they're not responding. But they continue to try inputs on the control column for the remainder of the flight anyway. Hmm. Haynes asked Fitch to take over control of the throttles so that Haynes could concentrate on the control column. So, you know, with one hand on each throttle, Fitch was able to mitigate that fugoid cycle and make really rough steering adjustments. Wow. So uh, the crew contacts air traffic control and plan for an emergency landing at Sioux Gateway Airport in Sioux City, Iowa. Uh, it's also noted that Haynes kept his sense of humor during the emergency. I'm going to have some examples here from the cockpit voice recorder. 
So in the cockpit voice recorder, you can hear Fitch saying, I'll tell you what, we'll have a beer when this is all done. And Haynes replies, well, I don't drink, but I'll sure as hell have one. <laughs> so, so, you know, they're trying to, you know, maintain levity. They're, you know, they're obviously in a very stressful situation, but they're still trying to have, you know, a positive look on, uh, on what's going on. There is something good about that because it keeps you from freaking out. Right. You don't like fully fall into despair. You're like, yeah, you're going to do the best you can. Uh, and at one point later, uh, Sioux City Approach says, uh, United 232 heavy. The wind's currently 360 at 1-1. You're clear to land on any runway. So they just cleared out every runway. Like, get off. <laughs> Make room. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. In reply, Haynes laughs and he says, Roger, you want to be particular and make it a runway, huh? <laughs> Wow. Uh, I mean, I, I, but think about it, like this is this is such a strange situation. Imagine if you were on this plane and you see like the guy next to you hit the flight attendant call button and says, hey, let the pilot know if he wants any help. I can go up there. And then he goes up there. <laughs> and then and then he's and running then, back and forth looking at <laughs> <out> the windows. <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, who the hell is this guy? And you'd also uh, be like, uh, what the hell is going on? It's also, I mean, so fortunate because like I mentioned earlier, Fitch had been kind of training for this exact scenario in simulators with, you know, the similarities with Japan 1, 2, 3, you know, wondering if it was possible to control a plane purely with engine power. Wow. And he's the guy controlling the throttles in the cockpit now for United 232. So as the crew is preparing to land at Sioux City, you know, they question whether or not they should deploy the landing gear, but ultimately they decide to deploy it so it could absorb some of the impact, you know. And we talked about this in British Airways 38. They kept the gear down as well to absorb some of that impact from hitting the ground. The only reason why they wouldn't is because it might slow them down. Is that it? Right. It could create drag. Mm-hmm. It could change the way that the uh, the airplane handles. Yeah. Ultimately, remember with Japan Airlines 123, they were in a very similar situation. When they deployed flaps, it changed the way that the plane handled. And that's mm-hmm. what ultimately made them lose control. That's right. So, you know, deploying the gear here might make it so that they can't control the plane with throttles anymore. And they're so trying it's, to land, so it's the most delicate time. Yeah. Right. So because of the hydraulic failure, the landing gear mechanism was inoperative. So they had to use a lever in the cockpit floor that caused the landing gear to fall into position. You know, gravity pulls it down and locks it down. And that lever, when they deploy it, it also unlocks the outboard ailerons, which are like a section of ailerons at the very end of the wings that are locked uh, in a neutral position during high-speed flight. And the crew, you know, had their fingers crossed. They were kind of hoping that maybe there's some hydraulic fluid stuck out there and that when they deployed it, that, you know, it could come in and it would help them control the plane. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that is not the case. It didn't happen. Oh. However, the landing gear did deploy successfully. They were originally planning to land on runway 31. But with difficulties in controlling the plane, you know, lining up became extremely difficult. They dumped some excess fuel while making a series of mostly right-hand turns, but ended up lining up instead for uh, runway 22. Wait, why'd they dump fuel? Uh, they want to try to not be as heavy when they come down. Oh, okay. I was thinking, like, so they didn't blow up or something? I mean, that, that could be part of it as well. But, you know, you, you can't be too heavy when you land, and it's less fuel for a fire. Man, they were just, like, doing everything. Right. I mean, they're totally in control. It helps that, you know, there's three people normally in this cockpit, plus they were all experienced. And then on top of that, they got a fourth who really knows what he's doing as well. Yeah. So fire trucks were parked on that runway on 22, anticipating that the plane was going to land on 31. So they had to quickly get out of the way because of that last minute change. <laughs> so uh, they're, they're scrambling to get out of the way. And then on top of that, the runway they ended up lining up on had been permanently shut down a year before this. Oh. Planes weren't normally using this. So, but whatever, like, like the captain yeah. said, you want to be picky and pick a runway? I mean, they're yeah. going to do the best <laughs> they can. Air traffic control did also give them the option of landing on a four-lane interstate that ran north and south on the east side of the airport, but, you know, the pilot opted for the runway. Did they shut down the interstate just for that? I don't think they did because the pilot, you know, was still going for the runway. 
And we had talked about this before, you know, I think in British Airways 38, they uh, looked at that runway that was right next to the airport as well. And they wanted to make sure that they missed it. Yeah. So Fitch continues to control the aircraft descent by, you know, adjusting the engine thrust. And because of the loss of hydraulics, you know, they couldn't extend flaps, which you normally need when you're slowing down to come in like this. Mm-hmm. On final approach, the Ford speed was 220 knots and the sink rate was 1,850 feet per minute. A normal safe landing would have a forward speed of 140 knots and a sink rate of 300 feet per minute. So they're, what, like 50% faster and six times... Harder, like down? Yeah, six times, yeah, harder, six times faster (laughs) coming down, sinking. Dvorak actually gets out of his seat and he straps into the cockpit jump seat so that Fitch could have a place to sit during the landing. And that's because the engineer's seat could move so that it was in a position behind the throttle. So the flight engineer says, you know, you're you're doing the throttles, you take my seat, I'm going to go sit in the jump seat. Fitch noticed the high sink rate and a yaw to the right, so he you know, pushed the throttles to full power in an attempt to mitigate the sink rate and level the plane. Mm-hmm. The plane ends up crashing at 4 p.m. Uh, the tip of the right wing hit the ground first. Fuel spilled out and immediately ignited. Well, well that's why they dump it. Right, they, they try to dump it for this. The force of the impact caused the tail section to break off and the rest of the aircraft bounced several times, breaking the landing gear and fuselage into several main pieces. On the final impact, the right wing was shorn off and the main part of the aircraft skidded sideways and rolled onto its back where it slid and came to stop upside down in a cornfield to the right of runway 22. Some witnesses reported the aircraft had cartwheeled end over end, but this was mistaken. It was actually the right wing that was tumbling end over end and the left wing that rolled up and over as the fuselage flipped over. I really hope the crew makes it because I'm invested in them now. Yeah, uh, there's actually footage of this. Like I said, when I was a kid, I saw this on the news when the incident happened. You know, the the local Uh news crew there knew that a plane was coming in to crash and they were scrambling to try to set up to film it. And there is it's it's not great footage, but you can see if you you will we'll include a link on our social media. Uh, You can see footage of this plane uh, crash landing in in Sioux City. So like we mentioned earlier, there were 296 people on board of the 296 people. 112 died, which is terrible. But you consider that. I mean, that means 184 people lived. Well, I feel like most crashes, everyone dies. Right. It's like, of the ones that we've covered, if it's a bad crash, everyone, it's like there are no survivors, right? Yeah, especially something like this, you know, loss of hydraulic power, loss of an engine at cruising altitude. This is a terrible situation. You know, there was no checklist, no procedure for this. It's unprecedented that they were able to to bring this down and have people live. Uh-huh. So many of the deaths were located in first class and the tail section of the plane. And the majority of the survivors were located behind first class and in front of the wings. Of those passengers who died, 35 of them died from smoke inhalation. 76 died for other reasons, which was most likely blunt impact. And one of them died 31 days after the accident in the hospital. Many of those who survived were able to walk out of the ruptures in the plane. Whoa. Yeah, there were 52 children on this flight. Of them, four children were lap children who were sitting on laps of other passengers. And this was actually really bad luck because there were so many children on this flight because it just so happened that United Airlines was running oh, no. a Children's Day promotion uh, on oh, this day. No. And yeah, and many of them were traveling alone. 11 children died, including one lap child. The procedure at the time, and I've seen interviews with one of the flight attendants who survives this crash. Uh, she had to go around and tell people, like I said, there were four lap children. Normally they sit in the passenger's lap. Mm-hmm. She had to tell the passengers, put your child on the floor and hold them down. Oh my God. Because they didn't have a seat. They were too small. So it's like, that was the procedure at the time. It's like, just put your kid on the floor and hold him down. Hold them down? Right. Like with your With your hands? hands. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine how crazy that is? Oh my. Yeah, and uh, I guess I didn't elaborate. This Children's Day promotion, what it did was it allowed for children under 14 to fly for one cent if they were flying with an adult. 
So that's why, yeah, people were traveling. It was the summer. You know, why not fly somewhere with your kids? I mean, it's just terrible timing. So, you know, after the, the crash, crews show up to try to, you know, help people and put the fire out. And the plane was so broken up that it took them 35 minutes to find the cockpit. Oh, my God. But to answer your earlier question, when they found the cockpit, all four pilots were found oh, alive. The dream team. They, they, they made it. Wow. So I guess the big question here that I'm sure everyone's wondering is, what happened? You know, why, why did this fan blade disintegrate? You know, is this something that yeah. you need to worry about nowadays? So obviously, you know, the investigators want to want to want to get to the bottom of this. So they begin an extensive search to try to find the fan disc and blade assembly because it couldn't be located at the crash site. So they figure it's got to be back where it blew up. Some who knows where that happened, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, General Electric, who was the engines manufacturer, actually offered a fifty thousand dollar reward for anybody who found the disc and a thousand dollars for each fan blade. Wow. It took three months, but three months after the crash, a farmer discovered most of the fan disc with several blades still attached in her cornfield. And the rest of the fan disc and more blades were found nearby at a later time. So like it was just, you know, in a random field out in the middle of nowhere. At least in a random field rather than like on someone's head. True, true. Like, look at you, optimist. Yeah. When they did find the fan disc, investigators discovered a fatigue crack in the fan disc. And this crack was developing over the course of 18 years. And so part of the fan disc is made from a titanium alloy. And when titanium melts, it has a reaction with air that creates impurities, which can initiate a fatigue crack like this one. I, I'm not a metallurgist, so I'm going <laughs> to, I, 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 you know, did a little bit of research into this. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll read what I found, but I'm not super familiar with the process to make titanium. So the way that they try to prevent these impurities from occurring is they use a double vacuum system. The titanium is melted in a vacuum. It's allowed to cool and solidify, and then it's melted in a vacuum again. Hmm. Then after this, they shape it into a sausage-like form called a billet. It's like a, basically like a rod. The billet is then tested with an ultrasound to look for defects. And it just so happens that during the manufacturing process, defects were found in the titanium used to make this fan disc, and it was sent back for further processing, but some contamination remained. Oh. The contamination caused what is known as a hard alpha inclusion, which is where a contaminant particle in a metal alloy causes the metal around it to become brittle. And this brittle titanium around the particle cracked during the forging and fell out, leaving a cavity with microscopic cracks at the edge. So tiny little cracks, you know, like I said, microscopic. And for the next 18 years, the cracks grew very slightly every time the engine was powered up. And eventually the cracks became too big and broke and caused the disc to disintegrate and fail. So it was just bad titanium? Bad metallurgy. You know, they just, it just had impurities in Over it. Over 18 years. So- right. And, it, it, and it's funny, we keep drawing the parallels to Japan Airlines 123. It was a similar thing there where, you know, there was an improper repair done. And over the course of many cycles, it finally broke. Yeah. So was that anyone's particular fault? I mean, they're not going to go back and like find the person who smelted the metal back 20 years ago, right? Well, I'm sure it was, you know, whoever supplied the titanium. Uh-huh. It's going to be uh, their fault ultimately. But yeah, you're right. Who knows who that is? This happened 20 years later. Many other civilian and military aircraft at this time were using the same type of engines, the same type of discs, and uh, because of this accident, a large number of these discs that were in service had to be examined for defects. And fan discs in at least two other engines were found to have similar defects. Oh. So, you know, it's good that they went and checked. You know, they realized that there's a problem. They go and they check the other engines like, oh, you know, we need to do something about this. Man. So I'm going to read a quote here from the NTSB about this incident. 
The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the inadequate consideration given to human factor limitations in the inspection and quality control procedures used by United Airlines engine overhaul facility, which resulted in the failure to detect a fatigue crack originating from a previously undetected metallurgical defect located in a critical area of the Stage 1 fan disc that was manufactured by General Electric aircraft engines. That was all one sentence, by the way. Wow. (laughs) Uh, The subsequent catastrophic disintegration of the disc resulted in the liberation of debris in a pattern of distribution and with energy levels that exceeded the level of protection provided by design features of the hydraulic systems that operate in the DC-10's flight controls. So basically, they put blame squarely on the manufacturer. Uh, They also put blame on uh, United Airlines for not detecting the crack. But could they have seen it? Is it something that you said it was like microscopic? Is it? It, it started microscopic, but it's speculated that during regular inspections, this is something that should have been noticed. Oh. That, uh, you know, when the plane was went in for maintenance, that it, it had gotten to the point where it was visible hmm. and someone should have noticed that this was happening. That's why blame is also placed on United Airlines for not noticing that this, this was happening. Gotcha. So during the investigation, the NTSB reconstructed the accident in flight simulators, and they deemed that the training for an event like this has too many factors to be practical. And they stated that the flight crew's performance was highly commendable and greatly exceeded reasonable expectations. So basically, you know, they're they're trying to reconstruct it and trying to determine, you know, can we create a procedure for this? And they say there's just too many wild cards. Mm-hmm. We, they're, they're, you know, it's 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 too tough to try to plan for this. It's tough because I've seen interviews with Dennis Fitch, the Czech airman who was controlling the throttles, and you know, despite the fact that so many people lived, he was still super broken up about this. Like he blamed himself for really? uh, for the deaths. Yeah. No one blames him, by the way. This is absolutely not his fault. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like they did as good as they possibly could have. Yeah, he blames himself because he was trying to bring the plane in, you know, for landing, and that the speed dipped a little too much, and that's why the right wing went down, and that's why the plane crashed instead of landing safely. He thinks that he should have kept the speed a little higher, and he thinks that if he had kept the speed a little higher, that the plane might have touched down with less loss of life. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like, what an amazing feat he accomplished and he still was thinking he could have done better you know it's 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 crazy but the manufacturing process for titanium was actually changed as a result of this to eliminate the type of anomaly that you know started the cracks and now titanium is melted at a higher temperature and now they do a triple vacuum process instead of a a double vacuum to try to uh you know prevent this kind of things and uh newer aircraft designs also have what they call hydraulic fuses so if there's a, a punctured section, it kind of like locks it off and prevents total loss of hydraulic fluid so that the crew can retain some control of an aircraft. Like blood clotting or something. Right. I mean, yeah, they'll just basically, these fuses will stop the flow of, uh, yeah, like it's like a clot. It'll stop the flow of fluid out to where uh, the puncture is detected. So like I mentioned, there were, you know, four lap children on this flight and one of them did die from smoke inhalation. The NTSB added a safety recommendation suggesting a requirement for children under two to be safely restrained. This recommendation was on the list of most wanted safety improvements, but it was removed in November of 2006. So think about that. I mean, that was, what, 17 years later, and they still can't get it done. So wait, they removed it? Right. It was, it was never implemented. It was on a list of most wanted safety improvements, but then it ended up getting removed from that list. Why? I don't know. I can't answer that. I mean, maybe they think it's too difficult to do. Maybe they don't want to go through the expense, but it's still an issue. And in fact, the senior flight attendant for this flight, Jan Brown Lohr, she led a campaign for all children to have seats on the aircraft. The NTSB and FAA still recommend the practice of aircraft restraints for children under two, but it's not required by the FAA. 
The NTSB asked the International Civil Aviation Organization to make this a requirement in September 2013, but it's still not done. It's still in limbo. I wonder why they don't have like special baby seats, you know, like. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah, right. I mean, they have infant life vests and yeah. uh, I've seen, you know, on some long haul flights, they'll have like cribs for babies. But, you know, you get in a car, you have a car seat for a baby. Yeah. Why wouldn't you on a plane? I'm sure they don't want to store it. I'm sure they don't want to deal with maintaining it. It, who knows? That's why I don't have a baby. That, is that the reason? I don't want to, have to deal with storing it or maintaining it. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I mean, this is still a, a, a real concern. I had never thought about that. I, I mean, just the fact that there are people who don't have seats on planes and that if there's a crash, they have to push them into the floor. Like, that's right. bizarre. Yeah. And, and uh, I also, I've, I've seen an interview with this flight attendant we mentioned, uh, John Brown Lore, where, you know, she is also incredibly upset about what happened to this children on this flight because she was the one who had to go and tell the passengers, put your kid on the floor. Uh, I think she was haunted by this. You know, she she seemed for years after this upset about the fact that children died because she told, you know, she didn't have a solution for their, for their parents. You know, she told yeah. them, uh, you just put your kid on the floor and hope for the best, which is, you know, it's not her fault either. You know, she's... Yeah. It's none of the none of their faults. It sounds like they all did really good jobs. Yeah, she's doing what you know what she was what was supposed to be done. So this accident became a prime example of successful crew resource management. Remember, we talked about that previously before. And uh, Captain Haynes credits crew resource management for being one of the factors that saved his own life and many others. Captain Haynes ultimately passed away August of last year, August of 2019, at age 87. And United Airlines issued a statement thanking him for his exceptional efforts aboard Flight 232. Uh, I believe Dennis Fitch also passed away some years ago. I think he passed away but, in 2012. Gus, did they ever get their beer? I, I don't know for certain, but I almost guarantee that these guys probably had a beer uh, afterwards. Man, that is so wild. Yeah, that's United 232. I like this incident because it really brings together things that we've talked about in other episodes, from crew resource management to hydraulic systems, fugoid cycles, uh, you know, using throttle to control the direction of a plane it's really like the the culmination of all these different things in in one incident and plus there is footage of this like i said we'll link it on social media there's footage of this plane uh crashing yeah i'm gonna go watch it as soon as we're done recording (laughs) um for people because we reference the uh, japan flight a lot that is episode that's episode two i believe of black box down uh yeah yeah. so if you want to yeah, go back and listen. There's a lot of similarities between these two as far as, you know, what happened and the attempts to control the plane. That one, of course, did not work out as well as this one. United 232 really stands out as uh, like an example of when things go right. You know, ultimately, people did lose their lives, but more people did uh, survive and were able to uh, to walk away from this yeah, flight. Which sounds, I mean, it sounds like wild that more people lived than died. Yeah, can you imagine, you know, surviving this flight, you know, you go to get out of the plane and the plane's broken up like you don't even have to go to well, that's to, what was, to, to, to a door you walk yeah. out of a crack yeah you're like oh people were just walking out of the holes in the plane it's like oh my god and but then there are some people who are like i'm sure not walk you know it's like that that's like it's just wild that that was happening they're like all right well oh i'll well, grab my bag i guess not you know like <laughs> yeah hopefully they they left their bags they're supposed yeah. to do, just leave your bag and get out of the plane all right well um Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, like I said, follow us on social media on Instagram and Twitter at Black Box Down Pod. I'll post some images and uh, links to videos about this incident. And uh, if you enjoy the podcast, we ask that you share it with a friend. Give us a rating if you can, wherever you get podcasts. And uh, hopefully you enjoy this episode. We have plenty more planned. Yeah. We had one uh, listener tell us on Twitter that they shared this podcast with their dad and that they 
love it. So share this with your dad or your mom. They might love it. <laughs> share it with, uh, with someone in your immediate family, a parent, a sibling, yeah. send it their way. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you all next time.